Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, and there is in chapter four here of Ephesians, which is our text for the morning. Uh, we'll use Psalms as a as to help us more understand what's there in Ephesians chapter four. But there is much in this chapter. Um, and I want to read just a little bit here. I want to read down to verse 16 of chapter four of Ephesians uh, to get us uh, into the spirit, if you will, this morning. It's important that we read the word of God. In the Word of God, we see that it is God who blesses His Word. Uh, it will not return void. It is the Word of God that builds faith within us and all those things that make us more uh, in Christ and closer to Him. And my words will only be blessed as they represent the truth of God's Word. So I want to make sure we are immersed in the Word of God this morning. So look right there at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. Paul writes, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and bond in the bond of peace. Uh, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in the hope of your calling and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Christ, uh, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, which is us, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Let us go to the Lord in prayer again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We ask that you bless the reading of your word and use it. Lord, guide me as I, as I teach and as I preach from your text here, Lord, what you would have us to teach. Lord, help me to convey the truth that you've given to me, Lord, in a way that's relevant, in a way that, uh, that's applicable to all of us here, Lord, as your church, as your bride this morning. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, there's, there's much in chapter 4. There's much in the entire book of Ephesians. It is a rich book. Uh, but I want to, and we're going to focus here in a moment, I'm going to have a sort of a long introduction here, but we're, our main thrust this morning will be probably around verses uh, 
10 to the end of the book, end of 16, 10 through 16. But before we get to that, Paul lays a significant foundation that I think it's important uh, for us to understand. So it's a rich chapter. I mean, even from the seven ones, I don't know if you caught those, but there's seven ones there, one hope, one Lord, one faith, and so forth. Um, those are rich in themselves. And I almost, I have half a message that's, that's developed through preaching through those ones, but I didn't get any peace about it. So the Lord had me jump down to verse number seven, which is where I think he led us to begin this morning with a study about God's grace. Verse seven says, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So we're going to talk about these gifts, but not in a way that you might think. But before we get to those gifts, Paul describes to us and to the Ephesian church, uh, really the other way around first, how these gifts were made possible. Now, we all get these gifts from God, but he takes the time to lay down some foundations on how we receive these gifts. Now, we will not exhaust all of this, but we'll give you maybe a wave top of what's, uh, what Paul is talking about here, because I think it's important for us to see it, namely because it's written in the book, in, in the Word of God. But look, we already read verse 7, but verse 8, uh, so verse 7 talks about those gifts, the measure of the gift of Christ. And verse 8 says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. He gave gifts unto men. We are, we are men. He's God. He gave us gifts. So this verse, this one verse connects the gifts of God to the Lord's ascension. Y'all see that, right? So he didn't, we didn't get any gifts until he ascended. And with that said, I want you to take your Bible and go back to Psalm chapter 68. Psalm chapter 68. Now, if you haven't turned there, if your Bible were closed, and if you just went right in the middle of your Bible, there's a good chance you'd go right to the book of Psalms. And this psalm is just left to center, at least in my Bible. It's on page 739, if that helps you at all. <laughs> so Psalm 68 uh, was written by David, believed to be written by David, about a thousand years before the cross, which is 3,000 years ago from today. Uh, maybe not to the day, but rounded to the nearest hundred years, I reckon. Um, but notice verse 17 of Psalm 68. The Bible says, David writes, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai and the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts from men. Yea, for the rebellious also, praise the Lord for that verse right there, uh, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. Selah, he that is our God, is the God of salvation. And unto God the Lord belong the issues from death. So here in Psalm, it's likely that David... Now, we can see some things because Paul shed some light on that, right? But David couldn't see what Paul was writing about. So it's likely that David was probably referring to some previous victories throughout Israel's past, namely one uh, in the book of Judges with Judah or with Deborah. But there's many other ones that compare to this. But because of Paul's application of the text to Christ... And his, his quoting, if you compare the quoting there in, in Ephesians, it is almost word for word to Psalms like no other place in the Old Testament. Uh, 
So we believe it's also one of David's messianic psalms. And like many applications in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament uh, and in the parables of our Lord, the author, David, uses earthly examples to teach heavenly truths. And we see that very much, very clear in the parables. But let's look a little closer at this text here. I thought it was kind of interesting. At the end of verse 17, again, this is a long introduction to get to the gifts. But at the end of verse 17, the Bible says the Lord is among them as in Sinai and in the holy place. Now, this is not a reference to the same place, but to different places, Sinai and the holy place. David is saying that the Lord is among them as he was in Sinai, where they gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and in the holy place, the holy of holies, the tabernacle, if you will. Remember, this is David writing, so the tabernacle was there. The temple was not yet built, but the holy of holies is still there. So as he was in Sinai, so was, our, so was God in the temple. And the chariots in this passage are easily a reference to the Lord's military advancements, throughout time, if you will. I want to point out that it's interesting that David doesn't even mention one battle between Sinai and the tabernacle. There's about 400 years between David's tabernacle and even farther if you go into Solomon and Hezekiah and so forth from Sinai. Right? And it's almost like he's not mentioning them, those difficulties, because nothing can thwart God's plan from Sinai to the tabernacle, which is, is, is of course a true statement. But much went on during those times. I mean, think about what happened during those times. God gave Ten Commandments. This is right after uh, Israel was freed from Egypt. The waters were parted. They went to Mount Sinai. They received the Ten Commandments. Then what happened? Did they go right into the conquest? No, they went into 40 years wandering in the desert because of their sins. And then when they got to the Promised Land, there was battle after battle after battle after battle. And then after they got into those temples, there was still protection from all those people that they didn't drive out, that God told them to drive out. So they had problems with them, with them, with those neighbors, if you will. But David doesn't mention any of those. So if the holy place is a reference to Zion, the holy of holies there in Jerusalem, as most believe, he ignores, David ignores space, he ignores time, he ignores conflicts from the Ten Commandments to Zion's temple. Puts them right together as if nothing was in the middle. In context, this verse here, verse 18 rather, which says, Thou hast ascended on high and hast led captivity captive, could then be a reference to God leading His children, His captives, if you will, as He ascended from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. Right? The Holy of Holies as He was there among the children of of men, His children. But notice verse 15 and 16 of Psalm 68. The Bible says, David writes, the hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, a high hill as the hill of Bashan. Why leap ye high hills? This is the hill which God desireth to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. So just to give you some idea, the hills of Bashan are in what we call modern day Syria together. They're on the other side of the Jordan River. If we had a map here, you all remember the Mediterranean the, the, the nation of Israel is here. Today you got like Jordan, you got the Jordan River, and then you have Syria up in here. Those are where those mountains are. They're, they're, they're 100 plus miles away uh, from Zion, if, if my math is right there off the top of my head. They're, they're across the river, if you will. They are snow-capped mountains. They are way higher than, than the Mount of Zion. I mean, they're beautiful to look at. Even today, they just, they're majestic. They're the menu of the Himalayas or the Rockies or something like that. All of them dwarf Mount Zion. 
All of them. In other words, even though, what this text is getting at, even though they are more beautiful and there are more beautiful mountains, even higher mountains than Mount Zion, where the tabernacle is, God chose Zion. And that makes it the highest mount on this earth. And writing in poetic form, David here says, the higher mountains around Zion, they're leaping. That's poetic, of course. They're leaping so they can get to heaven higher than Mount Zion, but it's not possible. Now then also from a poetic bird's eye point of view, if you look at this now, where did God's people start? They started in the land of Ur with Abraham. So from a poetic, make sure it's poetic here, from a bird's eye poetic view, God ascended from a lean-to with Abraham in the, in, the, in the land of Ur all the way to that great golden temple on top of Mount Zion. The ascension of God with God's people. He ascended on high. He led captivity captive. He received gifts from men, yea, even the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell among them, might tabernacle among them. And then, so hold that thought there and go back to Ephesians chapter, chapter 4. Paul takes that text there in Psalms and he amplifies it. He exalts it to, and applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes it a higher meaning. Now, it was talking about God, but now he's talking about God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7 again. But unto every one of us, again, almost word for word here, uh, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. So we have Jesus Christ now descending first to the earth as a man, but in context here, descending into the lower parts of the earth. What's he talking about? He's talking about the grave. The word lower, actually, in the, in, the, in the Greek here, is the same word that many of our early Christian creeds, you know, the Nicene Creed, when they use the word lower, they mention Hades or hell or something along, along those lines. So Paul is saying that the Savior, our, our God, in the person of Jesus Christ, descended into the lower parts of the earth, and then, if you read through that text, it's clearly a reference to his resurrection when he ascends. He led captivity captive, and he ascended up far above heavens. There is an antithesis, if you will, far above heavens to the bottom of the earth. The lowest part of humanity can be to the highest part that any man could be in the person, in the manhood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So get this now, where David records marching from Sinai to Zion and ascending into the Holy of Holies, Paul records Christ marching from the depths of hell into the real Holy of Holies, the tabernacle, the throne room of God, and sitting down and then giving those gifts to men far above all heavens that he might fill all things. What a Savior. As a man, he did this. Praise God. All man, all God. That's our Savior. Our Savior. Even our faith is a gift of God. And you might ask, what does this have to do with grace according to measure? Everything. Everything. There is no grace without a resurrected Christ. There is no grace without an ascended Christ. And God's grace is a gift. And these gifts come from the ascended Savior. Our salvation is even a gift. Even our faith is a gift of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, just a page or two over to your left. Verse 8 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So saving faith under God's saving grace is a gift of God. Is a gift of God. And these gifts are not possible, again, without the ascension of Christ. Now, if we back that up a little bit. So if they're not possible without the ascension of Christ, and we know that there is no ascension of Christ without a him descending first. And then there's no descending without the death of Christ. And there's no death of Christ without the cross of Christ. All of our gifts hinge on the cross. All of it hinge. I and mean, if you can put the cross on, the, on, on a timeline, and in reality, it splits time. It changes everything. We, I mean, even in the Western world, the Christian world, we measure our years by that. And more importantly, we should measure our own life with our interaction with the cross. Have you met the Christ, the, the Christ of the cross? And before we get to that, I want to point out a couple more things here. That phrase there, he that descended is the same also that ascended. I think that's akin to he that died is the same that is risen. Right? Y'all see that, right? Well, Jesus told John in the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, he said, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive evermore. And then what did Jesus say next? I have the keys to hell and death. Well, where did he get those keys? On the cross. When he descended into the lower depths of hell, he that descended is the same also that ascended. Now, I don't think Paul here is trying to write a masterpiece, although I think it's very well written. But I think his point is to purposely connect our Christian gifts with the cross, with the cross of Christ. And let's get into these gifts here. Verse 11 begins with, and he gave some. And he gave some. Which I think is a direct reference back to verses 7 and 8. Verses 9 and 10 are kind of like a side note then. Many, many of your Bibles have verses 7 and 9 in parentheses. So if you read those without the parentheses, look at verse 7 again. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Verse 11, and he gave some. Some of those gifts. What are those gifts? He gave some apostles and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors, and teachers. So that first group there, and we won't get into too much of the theological significance here, or the backgrounds here, but that first group, the apostles and prophets, they were gifts given by Christ to build and construct the New Testament church in the first century. The second group, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, they are gifts given by Christ to maintain and grow the New Testament church even today. That's why we're here. In a sense, they are gifts given unto men, the apostles, the teachers, the pastors and preachers. God gave a measure of his grace in some apostles and so forth. And while these positions are important, there, there is a, this position as a pastor is important. Position of apostle is important. But I'm not here to talk about those things. I want to talk about the grace that's behind those things. The grace and the intent behind these gifts. And even though Paul is writing to believers, I think it's important to begin with the foundation of grace that all these other gifts rest upon. Now, I know we're kind of late already in the hour, but notice with me again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The first gift of grace is eternal life for his saints. 
eternal life. Eternal life. The grace we all need and the grace that verse 7 refers to as according to the measure of the gift of Christ is salvation. We all need salvation. If you're here and you're not saved, it's, this is all for nothing. This is all for You're just meeting and hanging out with Christians. We need to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15, Jesus said this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, speaking of His crucifixion, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For by grace are you saved. You have eternal life this morning. Without a doubt, salvation is the first measure of grace needed. All those other graces, there's grace for living even without Christ. There's grace that even the air we breathe is a gift from God. But none of that's going to last eternally without this first gift of salvation. And this measure of grace, salvation that is, only comes and surprisingly comes by a measure of faith. A measure of faith. You know, if you think about it, Everybody has faith in something. We all have faith. Faith is a gift from God. We all have faith. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans 12, 3, that we are to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man a measure of faith. We all have faith. We all have faith in something. But just like some of us, maybe not in this room here, but waste, we waste our God-given talents and we use them for something that doesn't honor God, Unbelievers waste their God-given faith on things that don't pertain to God. They have the faith. It's just misplaced. Even atheists have faith because they must believe there is no God. No matter what evidence comes their way, no matter what they perceive, they must believe there's no God. That's faith. You can call it atheism all you want. It's still faith. But the Bible states that the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. And that same God who wrote that and penned that only asked that we, as His creation, have a measure of faith. We don't have to believe all the things the Bible says. It's a good start. But to, stay, to be saved, we just need a measure. Jesus said a mustard seed, a grain. And with that grain, Jesus even said that we can move mountains. Move mountains. And quite honestly, if you think about it, if you really study out where we stand before God, when we recognize how holy and righteous God truly is, we will also recognize the mountain of iniquity between us and God. He is a holy God. I mean, how could He not be a holy God? He is holy, thrice holy. That mountain of iniquity, of iniquity separates us from Him, but it is a mountain that can be moved with a seed. Isn't that great? A mountain that can be moved by a seed, just a mustard seed of faith in the atoning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because truthfully, all our sins been paid for. Every, everything, past, present, and future, all been paid for because Jesus paid it all on the cross. And all our sins were future on the cross, by the way. So the only mountain between God and man is the rejection of that payment. But it's available because where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Salvation is free. We cannot earn it. We cannot keep it through good behavior. We can't keep ourselves heaven bound no more than we can keep ourselves in heaven when we are there. I mean, think about that for a moment. We're not going to be able to escape heaven and nor will we want to. 
But it's all grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And this gift, again, is available to all men. To all men. God is not willing that any should perish. That includes you. That includes me. Every one of us. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But salvation is the beginning. It's the birth. And all those graces come afterwards. Verse 12 uh, continues with a threefold purpose of why God gave those apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. And hopefully this will go a little bit quicker here. But number one, we see that, that God gave, that Jesus gave grace for the equipping of the saints. For the equipping of the saints. Look at verse 11 again. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. That word perfecting means to furnish or to equip. It can be equated to equipping the saints for godly life and labor, which will be the second point. But the idea here is that God uses people. God could easily come down and do all of this work on his own, but he chooses to use people. He uses evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip his people, to equip the saints. Now, I realize where I am this morning. I realize that we are in church. But let me ask a silly question. If God called pastors, teachers and evangelists to equip his saints, where do we go to hear those pastors, teachers and evangelists? Right. We come to church. We come to church. Now, I was hoping nobody would say YouTube there. <laughs> but I'm certainly not against that. We have things on YouTube, but nothing replaces this. This is God's idea. This has been going on since the resurrection. This is what God's idea is. It may not look like this. Maybe they were hiding underground in certain places, but they were singing. Okay, we're a little different. We didn't sing. So there's a whole lot of same, the same doctrine, the same Savior, all those things. Nothing replaces this. Now, I also want to say that I realize that I'm the pastor and and I'm not here to garner a great following. If, if I were, I probably wouldn't have come to Hohenfels. But I do believe that God called me to minister here to the best of my ability and that I realize also that who I am, how I live, all, all about me makes a difference on how we worship. Now, you're your own person and I get that. But I also realize that regardless of my responsibilities as a pastor, this church is greater than me. It's greater than any one of us. This is God's bride. This is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, his body. I say that to say this. The perfecting of the saints is directly connected. Right here in the text and many other passages is directly connected to our commitment to God's house. Where we hear those evangelists, pastors and teachers. Listen, if you are concerned like me for your family, if you are concerned like me for your community, if you are concerned like me for your country or maybe your state or whatever you are, your commitment to assembling with the saints is imperative. Being immersed in the teaching and preaching of God's word and surrounding yourselves with fellow believers and worshiping the risen Savior is a significant building block in your Christian walk. It cannot be replaced. We will never be, you and I will never be equipped to grow our faith and experience a measure of grace that will impact our families, communities, or countries without our commitment to the local church. It's just not possible. 
Last week we spoke about the importance of prayer. And when we permeate our lives with prayer, scripture, and church, those three things, this perfecting, if you will, this equipping, Begins. God starts using all these things, prayer, scripture reading in the church, to build us, to equip us. And quite honestly, we need this equipping. I need this equipping. We need to be ready for what this world throws at us. Later on, Paul will write about how to stand against the wiles of the devil. There in Ephesians chapter 6, he will talk about our spiritual weapons of warfare. But it begins here in chapter 4. It begins in the church. It begins at home. It begins in your walk with the Lord. So our furnishing is not just so we can be equipped either. It's not like, I'm equipped. And then what? God has a plan. We don't just receive this measure of grace for God's glory, even though it does Him glory. Ephesians 2, chapter, verse 10 says that we are His workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So there is grace for our perfecting. We need that grace for our equipping, if you will. But then there's also, I like this, the employment of saints. I'm an, I'm an employed saint. How many of us are employed saints? Don't, don't raise your hands, maybe. <laughs> we should be employed saints. Now, most of us don't associate grace with working. <laughs> Many years I didn't associate those two things together. But this is exactly what is needed if we expect to work for any length of time in the ministry. Now, we will all get to a point in life where we need more grace. We will all get to a point when we feel like quitting. I asked a, a very a close friend of mine, a very respected pastor one time, you ever feel like quitting the whole time you were in that ministry? He just cried. He didn't even answer me. But sometimes we get there. We just want to throw the towel in. Whether you're on a 25-mile road march, maybe, or your baby just won't stop crying. <laughs> I've been in both of those scenarios. You just want to throw the towel in, not the baby in. Just throw the towel away. It's tough sometimes. You need some grace to continue, and God has given us a measure of grace that's mostly untapped in our lives. The ministry is no different. And by ministry, we mean, we usually mean, you and I, those things that we think of ministry. We think of pastors and deacons, song leaders, but ministry is many things, many, many things. And if I were to ask 10 different people to define the work of ministry, I think I'd probably get 10 different answers. In other words, let me ask them, let me ask some rhetorical questions this morning to get us thinking about what the work of ministry is. I mean, look at verse 12 again, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of of the ministry. So what is this work of the ministry? Is the work of the ministry keeping the Ten Commandments? You know, don't worship false gods, honor your parents, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet, and so forth. Would reading our Bibles count as work for the ministry? Praying or church attendance, would that be considered work of the ministry? Or are those things more connected to who we are in Christ and therefore just an outpouring of the grace resulting from a close walk with the Lord. In other words, is, is there a difference between a, a child honoring his parents and that same child cutting the grass? Is there a difference? I mean, one, I think he's going above and beyond cutting the grass, a blessing. I like kids that cut the grass, especially our church grass. But honoring their parents, it's, 
I mean, if he were mean and always bad-mouthing and cussing and cursing his parents, that's not, that's not normal. That's, that's not the opposite of the work of ministry. He's not living right. That's a behavior issue. There's a difference. And if there is a difference between keeping the commandments and the work of the ministry, if there is a difference between a child honoring his parents and that same child cutting the grass, what is the work of the ministry? I think when you really think about it, and it really boils down, there is only one ultimate command that meets the definition. And it may carry a lot of subtask. In the armor, we have you know, a mission and all those things that follow along with, the, with, the, with that task. But there is really one only, one great commission. One great commission. And that is the work of the ministry. It comes in all different ways. It, 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 it outpours from the God's churches in all different ways, but that is the work of the ministry. Now, there is an implication that those who work the ministry have to live right among God and among God's people. You know, we have not only been commanded to reach the world and, and reach the world with the gospel, there is a measure of grace waiting for those who do. You know, in the army, let me just put it this way. In the army, I've, I spent a couple years in the army, more, more than a couple, I guess. But we have these things called formations. I know most of y'all know what a formation is, but, you know, just you know, a row of soldiers, you know, four deep or, you know, ten wide, four deep, however you want to look at it. You know, dress right, dress 30 inches to the front, all that craziness. But they're separated by ranks and columns. And sometimes we have what can be referred to as a detail formation where tasks are assigned by individual or by group. You know, first platoon, go cut the grass. They're all cutting the grass again. Right, second platoon, go clean the bathrooms, whatever. However, before a soldier gets to his first unit, and but he is already trained on some individual tasks, right? Makes sense, like being on time, right uniform, right haircut, so forth. So when he is standing in that formation at his first unit, at that detail formation, if you will, they, he or she, is ready to receive specific instructions on what to do next. He already has all those general instructions. He's waiting for some, some specific instructions so he can be more a part of the greater formation. Now, for many years, this was me in my Christian walk with the Lord. You're probably thinking, what? doesn't make any sense. My Christian life was very similar to this. I did what was expected of me. I shined my spiritual boots, if you will, and cut my hair, ironed my uniform, all the things that I thought that God expected of me, that the church expected of me. I lived a good life. I didn't lie, didn't cheat, didn't steal. I tried to do what was right. When I messed up, I repented. I was living, in my mind, the best of, that I could do for the Lord. Going to church and all those things. Matter of fact, I went to formation every Sunday morning. And if the pastor asked me to do something while I was there, I would never say no. I would never say no because I was a part of the greater formation. I was prayed up, read up, and ready to work. But when the Sunday school teacher taught about giving or a guest preacher talked about missions, as long as he won't point his finger at me, it was easy just to shrug that off. I was good to go. I was like that soldier in that formation when the commander and first sergeant were calling for volunteers. And I'm like, surely that guy's going to go. Not me. Some other people will volunteer and usually other people do. But somewhere along the line in my life. I began to recognize God working on my heart. And I realized that the Great Commission, the work of the ministry, was right to me as a part of His church. Now, while my salvation was secure, 
and it was based on the Word of God, and my walk with God was truly genuine, it did not define me. For me to live was not Christ, even though I came to formation every Sunday morning. So in September of 2005, the Lord really got a hold of my heart in a, in a church service, and my wife and I went forward. And we gave our life to Christ to do whatever He wanted us to do, to go wherever He wanted us to do. I was still in the Army. I think I was in the Army like nine years or something like that. To do whatever He wanted me to do. I surrendered all to Him. Six years later, I would, I would be here and I surrendered to go into full-time ministry. I was sitting probably where you're at, Brother Frank. Eleven years later, I, I come here. And while our Savior is, of course, our greatest example, I'm afraid many Christians are doing all the right things except taking that step. We stand in formation, fully equipped, waiting on someone to pin the rose on us. But as long as they don't, this is my work of the ministry. But truthfully, Jesus has already done this in the Great Commission. But just in case, this is me pinning the rose on you. There's one on every seat. Give one to somebody. Give one to somebody. And for the record, committing to the work of the ministry, it really doesn't require a career change. It does for some. It did for me. But I want to point out that the world today desperately needs Christians to step forward. Our community needs Christians to step forward. There are so many of us, me included, for many of my years, my life is just like this. The whole world's dying. I'm just doing this. Sometimes I still do that. I don't want to tell them. It's embarrassing. We need obedient Christians. We need men and women, boys and girls, to exercise the grace they've been given according to the measure of the gift of Christ to do the work of His ministry. But of course, God's grace doesn't stop there. It, it never stops, right? There is ample grace for eternal life. There is ample grace for equipping us and employing us. And then lastly, I want you to see there is ample grace for the edifying of the saints. And this is our last point this morning because there's no more room on this television screen. But if the perfecting of saints can be equated to equipping saints for life and labor, the edification of saints is what keeps us going. This is also not just equipping but edifying. Equipping the saints has to do with getting the right tools in the right hands and teaching us how to use those tools for God's glory, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, and so forth. But edifying the saints has to do with keeping those tools clean and keeping them maintained and keeping us maintained, encouraging and training to keep us in the fight. And this is one of the most important things about our involvement in church. And I know that many of y'all will come through our doors the walkers are leaving, I think, next Sunday, right? Your last Sunday. They're going to go to a different church, different place. Many of y'all will come and go. The Morgans are 30 days or something. This is our lot here at Homeless Baptist Church. But I challenge you while you're here to do your best to fall in love with God's church. To do your best to fall in love with God's church the next place you go. To fall in love with God's imperfect people. Because we all need edification. Many Christians today are spiritually anemic because of a lack of edification found through regular preaching and teaching of the Word of God, found in worship together. You know, a while back, a preacher friend of mine, many of y'all might know him, uh, but he shared with me some painful details 
about some things that as I was listening to them, I, I thought about me going through that ordeal. And I'm thinking, there's no way I would make it through that. I asked him, what, how'd they get through it? And he shared with me how those prayers, his prayers, became increasingly more personal. They became more powerful. And I asked him what else could be done in his experience to endure such a, a trial. Genuine prayer and real passion for God's word in his church were a given. But they all resulted in what he called, I don't know if it was original with him, but it was original from him to me, grace for the moment. Grace for the moment. Friend, God always supplies our needs. And he is able. There is enough grace to give you grace for anything you endure. We can face everything on this world in prayer on our knees, but in for the, before the world standing tall because of God. Grace for the moment. God will not leave us without comfort. And he's already given us a measure of grace to his people so that we are equipped, employed, and edified. Look at, look at verse 13, and we'll kind of close out this morning. Why did he give us these gifts? Why did he give us these, these graces, if you will? For the perfecting of the saints there in verse 12, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge unto the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we, you and me, henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But we speak the truth and love and we may grow up in him all things, which is the head, even Christ. Look at verse 16 now. From whom the whole body, that's us, fitly joined together. That's members in the church. And compacted. I like that word. That means close together. Compacted by that which every joint, every joint, every member is important. Which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure. It has to be the measure of grace of every part. Maketh increase of the body unto it. And to the edifying of itself in love. We edify ourselves in the name of God. These passages give us the reason why. God has made a way through his measure of grace that we as a church can keep us going forward for the cause of Christ. Grace according to measure. Praise God. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer.